This sermon was preached on September 6, 2020 at Sure Foundation Lutheran Church located in Brandon, South Dakota on the basis of Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a very common misconception floating around out there, uh, and it's a misconception that's held by non-Christians, by new Christians, and, and even by some long-time Christians. Here's the misconception. The Christian community, and specifically the church, is either a perfect or near-perfect community. I see some smiles, and I see that's probably right. <laughs> uh, we know, since we've been in the church, we know that that's not really the, the case, that the Christian community is not perfect or near perfect. But sometimes when somebody walks into a, a church or, or just a Christian community, maybe it's a Bible study for the first time, they have this assumption. This is their expectation as they walk in. And they start to plug into some things in church, and they get involved socially, and they start to meet some people, and there's a lot of smiles, and there's a lot of happiness, and, and there's a lot of, uh, of harmonious relationships among people. And this becomes what they, they cherish about church. It's unlike any other organization that they've been a part of. They get along in this group, and they get along with people really well. There don't seem to be any big issues. But the problem with that is, all it takes is sin to ruin all of that, right? All it takes is the first time the church has to decide what color carpeting to put in the sanctuary, or what, what color paint to paint the walls. Then the first inner church argument ensues. All it takes is the first church scandal to happen, or all it takes is sin to rear its ugly head, as we know that it, it will, and that that perception of what church is and what this Christian community is, is shattered. And there's no putting those pieces back together. Soon, the church for this person becomes just like any or other organization out there. Jesus is under no illusion. <laughs> he, know that, he knows that the church is full of sinners. And he wants to tell the disciples how to deal with that, too. And so in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, he's talking to the disciples, and he wants to give them some very practical instructions on dealing with sin in the church. But a big overarching theme throughout this whole section is he really wants to show the disciples the true beauty of Christian community, and that's what we're going to be after this morning, too. So we're going to read from Matthew, chapter 18. We're just going to do the first couple verses right off the bat here. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. These are Jesus' words. We'll get the other verses later. But like we said before, Jesus is under no illusions. He knows that the church is full of sinners. And that's kind of the point, right? You wouldn't be here, we wouldn't be here if we were perfect. 
We wouldn't need Jesus if we were perfect, but we come to church to hear about the forgiveness of sins because we know that we are sinners. And so very practically speaking, Jesus knows we're not going to try to deny that there's sin in the church. We're not going to act like we're this perfect little community where nobody sins, this utopia, so to speak. But Jesus is going to say, this is how you deal with sin in the church. And if you're a sequential thinker, if you like things in great order, this is the section of Scripture for you, because he gives you a step-by-step process, which is very rarely ever the case in, in Scripture. But he gives you a step-by-step process on dealing with sin in the church, and he sets the context first. He says, if your brother or sister sins. He doesn't specify necessarily if this is a sin specifically against you, or if it's just a sin that you notice that this person is caught in. So it could be either of those circumstances. But the first step, he says, is go to them privately. Meet with them one-on-one. And think about how, what you can avoid by doing that, by going to meet with this person one-on-one. But, but actually, maybe even before that, we should say, the first instruction is to go, right? We can sit and pain over whether we should go or not, or, or maybe they'll come to their senses, or uh, they'll figure it out. They just need a little bit of time, or uh, maybe it's really not that bad what they're doing, and I don't need to get up and do anything. We can come up with all sorts of rationalizations to not go, but the first step is go, and then just go by yourself. Go with them. Meet with them one-on-one, because a lot of things can be accomplished one-on-one, and you avoid certain things, too. You avoid bringing them into any sort of public disgrace. The, the point of, of approaching this person that's caught in sin is not to embarrass them. It's not to bring their sin out into the open so everybody can hear about it. it it's to bring them to repentance, to, to get them to acknowledge that what they have done is against the will of God and to bring them back and to give them the gospel and the forgiveness and bring them back into the community. It, going to them one-on-one also allows, allows you to have a conversation that you wouldn't be able to have amongst a group. A very personal conversation where you can apply the law that God has given you to apply. You can apply the gospel that God has given you to apply in that circumstance. But Jesus is still under no illusions. He knows that this isn't the silver bullet. He's not saying that if you go and meet with somebody one-on-one that's absolutely going to be taken care of after that one visit. He doesn't make that promise. In fact, he, he says, if it doesn't, I give you another step here. So second step is bring a, a brother or a sister, one or two other people with you uh, to go confront this person. And there's great wisdom to this. Big surprise, we're finding wisdom from the Bible. But there's great wisdom in bringing people with you too. Because if that one-on-one conversation perhaps didn't go as you planned, and it could have not gone as you planned for a lot of different reasons, maybe you don't consider yourself somebody that's great with confrontation, or this became a highly emotional situation, and when we get emotional, sometimes we say things that we, we don't exactly mean, or we say things not exactly like we wanted to say them. And so by bringing, two or three, or bringing one or two other people along with you, you are able to establish your testimony. You bring more witnesses to the truth. You bring more people that are going to witness the truth. That's the point. They're, they're witnessing this conversation, but they're also witnesses to the truth. And they're able to give this brother or sister caught in sin perhaps a different perspective, a little different flavor from the word. It's the same truth, but a different perspective. Maybe they have a different relationship with that person than you do. Maybe there's some dy- dynamic in that relationship that uh, allows you to, or allows that person to communicate better than it allows you to communicate. Either way, there's great wisdom in bringing two or three people along with to establish the truth of Scripture. 
But he says that still might not be the end of it. And if that's the case, take it to the church where you have called workers to visit for what might be the third time visiting this person over the same sin. And if they fail to listen to you in the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which is what? You spit on them and kick dirt on their face? No, you're laughing, that's good. Um, No, how do you treat a pagan or a tax collector? How do you treat an unbeliever? You treat them as a soul to be one, right? They are the direct object of our evangelistic effort. Now they they are a soul to be won back to Jesus. So essentially, you're kind of looking at them the same as you would a strained brother or sister. The effort doesn't stop, is the point. So now, Jesus has, has laid out at least three visits. This is at least three, and that's assuming that only... Each one of these steps is only one visit to this person. Typically, when you're walking through a process like this, each step is probably two visits or three visits. It's longer as we we remain patient with people and as we work with people too. And because Jesus is the one laying out this, what does this tell you about your Savior? (laughs) That he's patient, right? That he's patient with them, that he's willing to at least give three visits or more visits to bring the string brother or sister back, and he doesn't. He never ties off, ties the knot at the end. He leaves it open, and he says, "Treat them as you would an unbeliever. Keep witnessing to them. Keep trying to bring bring them back." He cares so much about that string brother or sister that he wants them back. He loves them individually so much that he wants them back, and he knows that this community of believers is such a valuable thing that he doesn't want anybody else to miss out on this. Either. And so he uses you as believers, as a family of believers, to bring people back to the church, bring people back into the community of believers. It's interesting, just before this section, we always read things in context, right? Just before this section, Jesus tells a parable to the disciples. It's a pretty short parable, but he's talking about this flock of a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep wanders off, it strays away. And Jesus says, will not the shepherd leave the 99 to go find the one? Well, well, actually, most shepherds probably would stay with the 99. They probably wouldn't go find the one. But Jesus is our, our good shepherd who cares so much about the individual that he's going to leave the 99 to go find the one and bring them back. And that's the passion that he wants us to have in reaching out to the lost brothers and sisters, to the, the, the straying brothers and sisters in the family of believers, too. It's a nice sequential process, yet in actual practice, it gets pretty messy. <laughs> in actual practice, this, this process is a mess, and it causes a lot of controversy sometimes in, in churches. And it's not because the process is somehow flawed, because it came from Jesus, so we know it's not, it's not that. It's because we fail to recognize what Jesus said at the very beginning. Now, you caught the words, they're in yellow up there, but maybe you didn't really think about what that means or the implication of that. If your brother or sister sins, not necessarily talking about your your biological brother or sister, although it could be, but this is talking about your brother or sister in Christ. When, When you became a believer in Christ through baptism, you were bonded together with every other Christian alive and dead for that matter. You were bonded together in unity. You were brought into the family of believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, he doesn't say parent, it's a parent-child relationship. This is a brother-brother relationship, a sister-sister relationship, a brother-sister relationship. A brother talking to a brother is a, is a relationship of equality, right? 
What ruins the unity of Christian community is a lack of humility. It's a mouthful. What ruins the unity of Christian community is a lack of humility. When we approach something with pride or ego, especially a situation like this, we end up causing hurt where we meant to cause healing. But it's hard. It is hard. When, when a brother or sister strays from, from the faith, when, when they're caught in a sin that maybe we haven't dealt with before, it's hard. Because I have to get up and go and visit them. And frankly, I wouldn't be going to visit them if they hadn't sinned. And frankly, I wouldn't have to drag two other people in with me if they hadn't sinned. And frankly, I wouldn't have to get the church involved if they hadn't sinned. I wouldn't have to go through this whole process if this person just wouldn't have sinned. And that kind of brings up the thought that none of us would say out loud because we know how it sounds, but we probably all think it. If they could just follow the rules, like me, then we wouldn't be in this situation. If they just had their life together like me, then we wouldn't be in this situation. If they just knew the Bible better, like me, then we wouldn't be in this situation. There's a certain indignation or anger that we have over sin that's not pure. It's an indignation that comes from thinking that somehow I am morally virtuous or upright or at least more virtuous than than that person. When self-righteousness and pride enter into these conversations, this, this nice step process falls apart that Jesus has given us. But the, the true beauty of Christian community is in recognizing that in the parable of the 99 sheep that stayed and the one that strayed, the beauty of Christian community is recognizing that you are the one that strayed, that I was the one that, that strayed, that I was the one that, that left Jesus and for sin, but that Jesus loved me and you so much that he sought us out. He chased after us. He wasn't going to let us keep walking the path to destruction, to death, but instead, he died on the cross in our place. He rose to life, and in our baptism, he grabbed us from the jaws of death and brought us to life. That's what he did for you. As the straying brother or sister, he saved you from the jaws of death, not because you were morally virtuous or, or upright, but because his love for you was so deep. <laughs> That's your God. And when you bring that, when you bring the knowledge of Jesus' sacrifice for you, when you bring the, the knowledge of what Jesus did to save you from death, to chase after you into these conversations, when you bring the humility that only Jesus can give into the conversations with a straying brother or sister, it completely transforms those conversations. It it still doesn't mean that those conversations are going to be easy, but it means that instead of coming in judgment, you're coming with grace falling from your your tongue. Instead of trying to win an argument with somebody, you're trying to win that brother or sister back to faith. And so that's the true beauty of Christian community. Reaching out to lost sinners and giving them the forgiveness that they so desperately need. Uh, I was walking around our neighborhood the other day with uh, Rudy, and this man was cutting his lawn, and Rudy's my dog, by the way. Um, <laughs> some of you have, been, have had him jump up on you, so you know that. Um, 
I was walking around with Rudy the other day, and this, this man was cutting his lawn, and he was kind of coming around the corner of his house, and, and right behind him was his little son. I, I don't know how old he was. He was maybe like four, four years old or something, but he's pushing his uh, plastic lawnmower, and it, it was like the cover of a fatherhood magazine, you know. It was just a precious picture, um, and, and strangely enough, it got me thinking of our, our reading for, for today. Um, but maybe not in the way you think, and I don't mean to, to put a damper on that little kid's fun, but that little kid's following him with the, her, his father with the plastic lawnmower, but that plastic lawnmower is not doing anything, right? We, we know it is. We know it isn't doing anything. He just gets to pretend to be like dad for a little bit. When Jesus gives us the, these instructions, he, he's just not letting, us, he's not letting us just pretend to be like him. He's not giving us something to make us feel like we're doing something. He's actually putting power and authority behind what he's given us to do. And so he goes on in the next verses, and he says this, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the truly I tell you is always always interesting in scripture. When, when it shows up in, in Greek, it's our word for amen. Let it be so. Amen, I say to you. So truly I say to you, this, when he says this, he, he means business. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, when, when we're talking about binding on earth, a situation like that is this. When you go to confront a brother or a sister that is caught in a sin, and they remain unrepentant, meaning that they refuse to acknowledge their, their fault, they refuse to acknowledge that they sin before God, and they're going to keep on sinning how they're sinning. Um, God gives you, as a body of believers, the ability to bind that sin, meaning the ability to not forgive that, that sin. Because to forgive a sin of an unrepentant person would actually be spiritually harmful to them. To, to let them go on thinking that everything was all right spiritually would be spiritually harmful to them, and so he has given you the power to do that. And it's not just for pretend, it, it actually is bound in heaven. And then on the flip side, he gives you the incredible ability and responsibility to announce forgiveness to brothers and sisters in Christ too. So when you do approach that brother and sister and they, they, they recognize their sin, they acknowledge their sin before, before God and they, they're repentant, you get to announce to them the comfort of forgiveness. Which, this is beautiful for a couple reasons. Because of that. Because you get to announce forgiveness to them. So that when you say that you are forgiven, they can trust that before God, this sin is actually forgiven. Maybe we should try that a little bit more in our lives. I, I know I'm guilty of this a lot. When someone apologizes to me or says sorry, I, I normally just say, ah, it's okay. Or don't worry about it. But there's power in saying you are forgiven. There's power in those words, you are forgiven. And the second point is closely connected to, to the first. There is a connection here between earth and heaven. That when you forgive someone their sins, they are forgiven in heaven. There's a connection between earth and heaven because of forgiveness, which is beautiful and kind of mind-blowing at the, at the same time, that God would give us this responsibility here on earth. Part of the beauty of Christian community and then he concludes this section by saying again, truly I tell you, this is the amen, amen again in there. Again, truly I tell you that if two or three on earth agree about anything 
they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Before we talked about uh, what you come to value most as a Christian community, that, that sometimes if, if the misconception is held that this is a nice, perfect little community, or at least uh, a near-perfect one, better than any other community out there, uh, sin is going to, to ruin that. But what truly makes a community of Christians beautiful is that God is here. Where two or three gather together in, in his name, like we did at the beginning, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Their God is with them. Now, now, we know that God is always with us, right? And that's a great comfort to us. But here, in a very special way, in a way that we can't explain, he says, where two or three gather together in his name, there he is with them. God is here, right now. It looks so ordinary here, doesn't it? But God is here. And that's what makes worship so amazing. It makes the gathering of Christians in a community so beautiful is that God resides here as we praise him with song, as we pray to him, as we hear from him, in his word, God is in this place. <laughs> and that ties a nice little bow on our section here. Jesus wants us to reach out to the straying brother and sister because he loves them so deeply and because he doesn't want them to miss being where God is. In this community of Christians where earth and heaven are connected in a small way here. That, that misconception of the community of Christians being a, a perfect or near-perfect community will likely never be fully eradicated from, from people's minds. But as you come to think about the Christian community, as you come to think about church, remind yourself of these things. Remind yourself that God truly wants you here because he wants you to be a part of this beautiful community where he resides, where he gives forgiveness, and he wants you to be a part of the community that gives you a glimpse of what the community of heaven is going to look like someday. Enjoy it. Amen.